Good morning. Uh, my name is Phil Crowley, and I'm a member of the Galileans Sunday School class. I came to Christ through uh, Young Life in high school, and uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I came to Lake Avenue in April of 1970, and uh, a guy named Mike Vesey uh, brought me to college class up in the Sky Room and introduced me around, and afterwards I said to him, what's so special about this place? And he said, everybody here just loves Jesus. Later, I was uh, baptized by Pastor Marvin Jacobs. I think you will remember him, many of you. He will certainly remember you. He remembered everybody's name. Um, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today is from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, uh, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. 
He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, Phil, I think you should think about doing that professionally. <laughs> he does, he does. Well, I want to say a good morning to you, Lake Avenue, and I am so glad uh, to be home today. So I am grateful. Uh, for those of you who are or maybe new, or for probably the vast majority of you who probably don't care, um, I have been uh, blessed and been given a gift by you um, over the past three months to be on sabbatical. 
And sabbatical is, uh, before we jump into the sermon, I just want to say a couple things. Um, sabbatical, that idea and that concept is really rare. It's kind of odd. In fact, I, I dream and pray that everyone could experience uh, some time away from the normal rhythms of life um, to, to just be with God in a different way. You have given me a gift, um, a gift that has been a transformative moment in my life and my journey with Christ. It's been a pivotal shift in many ways for our family. Um, I am humbled and beyond grateful for the time and the length of time that you have given me, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. In fact, it would feel really selfish for me to take this gift from you and not share it with you. And this might sound awkward, but we're, we're trying to find a time, maybe near the end of September, where I just want to invite anyone who's interested uh, to come back out to Lake for an evening, and I just want to share with you what these three months have been like. I think they're going to show up. They'll show up a little bit today. They'll show up, hopefully, if it really has been transformative. But it's been so profound and so powerful, I feel, and sabbatical is such a weird thing that so many people don't get to experience. I, I want to share it with you as you've given it to me. And so next week in the worship folder, look for that. We'll, we'll have found. Even I can't get a room here. I just want you to know that. Um, <laughs> We've got to find a time and a room where that's going to work, but it, we're going to have it nailed down this week, and, and you'll have plenty of warning. And if you can't make that night, I'm never going to do it again, okay? So, but I want to thank you so much. I also want to ask for your grace this morning. I'm a little rusty. Um, it's been a bit. I haven't tucked in a shirt for two months uh, <laughs> since I did a wedding for Scott and Sarah Campbell, um, and it's been great to not tuck in a shirt, but I tucked it in for you today, and I wore a jacket for you. So, shall we jump into this time of teaching? All right, amen. Let's pray. God, we're really grateful to be here this morning, especially the, the great variety of weeks that we each have had individually, but together we're here now, and we have heard from your word about a time where your presence came and shut the mouths of lions. And so this morning, we pray to you and ask for your presence to come and not shut, but to open this morning, to open our ears, to open our hearts, to open our minds as to what you, God, want to say to us today, what you want to say to us as individuals, what you want to say to us as your church here at 393 North Lake Avenue, and we are eager to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ultimately, this morning, the question I think Daniel 6 is providing for us is this, is how is it that you and I are supposed to live at a time and in a moment where we might be asked to obey something that comes in conflict with what God has asked us to obey? More specifically, many commentators talk about the, the conflict in Daniel 6 being a narrative in which the law of the land comes in conflict with the law of God. And I would suggest that this question of when the law of the land and the law of God come in conflict with each other, that that question is still relevant to you and I today, that it's not reserved for an ancient text at an ancient time under a monarchy only, that it's an also a relevant question for you and I in our modern day under a democracy. Because there are practices 
that you and I have in our families. There are policies that we are asked to follow in the businesses and the companies, the institutions that we work for or study under. And there are even laws that are a part of our land that come in conflict all the time with the way of living that God calls us to live. Practices and policies, laws, man-made things come in conflict with the way of living that God calls you and I to live all the time. I remember when I was 19 years old, I had a a job where uh, friends and I got a job for about a year and we were taking medical records that were on paper and it was at a time where things were starting to transition to electronic records and so we got paid, it was a data entry job, it paid really well. And at the end of each month, if we had met the number that we were supposed to meet and exceeded it, our pay, we got some increases and some bumps and some bonuses. And so our boss at the time had a strategy for us. And the strategy was this, when it was the last Friday of the month, he knew where we were and at about noon or one o'clock that day, we were supposed to stop entering as we had for the whole month and then we transitioned to what we called doing them short form. And in short form, we would just put the first and the last name, and that was about it, and move on to the next one so that we could get those numbers in to a certain point so we could all get money. It was something the boss asked us to do. We all benefited from it. It was the first time where I found myself in a a moment of, of integrity was right there. What was I going to do? Ethically, what was I going to do? The place where I was working for was asking me to do something that was in conflict with the way of living that I have given my life to by following Jesus. I don't know what it is in your company, your organization, the traditions even in our families come in conflict at times with the way of living that God calls us to live. And our our own nation isn't void of these conflicts of the law of the land versus the law of God. Many of you here today were alive between 1926 and 1948. Those are years where some of you were on this earth and sometimes it's easier for us to wrap our mind around the conflicts in our own national history when we go a little farther back. And I'm gonna read some laws that used to be on the books for us in this country. And I recognize that the language, I'm gonna read them as they were written. And the language with how they are written is is for some of us, for some of you, very painful language, but I'm gonna read them as they were written. Because in Alabama, 1930, it shall be unlawful for a Negro and a white person to play together or in company with each other in any game of cards or dice, dominoes or checkers. 1926 in Georgia, no colored barber shall serve as a barber to white women or girls. Nebraska, 1926, marriages are void when one party is a white person and the other possesses one-eighth or more Negro, Japanese, or Chinese blood. And before we get arrogant here in California, it wasn't until 1948 that interracial marriage was seen as legal in our own state. The question as to the law of the land coming in conflict with the law of God is a relevant question in our lifetime and in all of our lifetimes. 
And so we need this story and we need this text. And the problem with this story, the problem with this text is so many of us have carried this narrative for so long in our life. We've heard it in children's church. Isn't it fascinating that we heard this story in children's church? We never talk about what happens after he gets out of the pit. That's not in the children's Bible, the, the, everybody getting devoured. But we've grown up with the story, and even as I've talked to people this week and before services, we all, some of us come already with an, a buttoned up understanding of what this text is about and what it says. And I would argue that this text keeps speaking and has lots to say. And this morning, what we're going to do is look at this text through the lens of obedience in the midst of disobedience. What does real obedience look like when we have to disobey to obey? And it's relevant, and it matters, and I pray that God would speak to you. On Monday, I binged all the Daniel uh, sermons we've had so far, getting caught up. It's been a great series, um, profound series, and we have tracked with Daniel since he was a young boy, and now we find ourselves in Daniel 6, and by way of context, stick with me for a moment. Daniel now is an older man. In this story, Daniel is somewhere in his 80s or 90s, we think. And we find out very early on in verse 3 when it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel is an older man with an incredible reputation. In fact, he's got such an incredible reputation, he has set himself apart from the rest, and he's about ready to get a promotion. He was going to be over the whole kingdom of King Darius. And about at the time we find out that he's to get this promotion, this incredible drama starts unfolding. And Phil, you read it so beautifully, and now I'm going to chunk it up a little bit for you and tell you very quickly. Daniel 6, we find Daniel prospering, right? He's on the edge of a promotion, being the number one guy to King Darius. And Daniel, on the edge of getting this promotion, his peers, we find out, aren't so excited about this promotion. You ever been in that situation? I hope they haven't plotted your death, or you haven't plotted their death. But his peers aren't so excited about the soon-to-be promotion. So they're trying to stop it. And they do what we do when there's someone we don't like. We're trying to find some dirt on them. In the modern day, I, I, I'm sure they would have scoured all his posts on Facebook. Everything that he linked to, they probably, and we can see, they were so involved in Daniel's life that they knew exactly what he did every day. They stalked him. They hired private investigators. They were looking for anything they could find to stop this promotion. That's how much they didn't like him and want this to happen. The only problem is they couldn't find anything on him, and so they moved to plan B, which is fascinating, isn't it? I wanted to be in those meetings where they storyboarded this plan out. We're gonna, we need to get him dead, so let's do the lion thing and work our way backwards to all the things that had to be thought of to get to the point where they wanted him dead. And ultimately what they do is they say the only thing that's going to get us, the only thing we can get this guy on, he's such a devout follower of Yahweh that that's going to be the way we trip him up. So let's trick the king. You see throughout this narrative, King Darius is very fond of Daniel. He's going to promote him. In fact, he doesn't sleep when he goes in the lion's den. He tries everything to save him in his power. But this group of people, minus Daniel, 
uh, go to the king and they, they trap him. They come up with a plan. They appeal to Darius's ego and they say, we, we think you should have King Darius month. And over this month, nobody gets to pray to anybody. In fact, you're the center of the month, and that will be a great thing. In fact, if anybody breaks it, well, you should throw him into the land of the, And he takes it because he's human. Who wouldn't want a King Darius month if you're King Darius? And so their plan works. Daniel finds out about this. He keeps on living the way that he's lived. He comes back. He's guilty of breaking this new law, the law of the land, the law of God. He chooses the law of God. And the consequence is death. He gets thrown into the den. Then God shows up in the den. Then he gets out of the den. Other people go in. And all of a sudden, King Darius, on King Darius month, is handing the month over to God and issuing decrees. And we end the chapter where we started with Daniel prospering. So much in this text. So many ways we can camp out. But this morning, we are going to camp out on this concept and this idea of seeing obedience. Because if we're honest, obedience is kind of a weird word as adults. It's a word that works really well between a parent and a child. It's a word that works really well with a grandparent and a grandkid. But none of us rarely come home. Very few of us come home, talk to our friends or our spouse, and you talk about your day and you describe it as, I was obedient today. And yet, obedience is a persistent and consistent call for the followers of Jesus throughout the scriptures. Obedience matters. And I think as we look at this narrative through the lens of obedience, we can find some encouragement, we can find some challenge, because this text is dripping with obedience in the midst of disobedience. So the first observation, I got four observations. They all have the letter P. You're gonna remember it and tell all your friends about it, I promise. First one, I wanna talk about the pressure of obedience. We see this early on. We see the drama unfold. Here he is, he's prospering. And now the plot begins. We, his peers don't want him to prosper. So that he's someone who is conspired against That doesn't feel good, it didn't feel good to Daniel, it doesn't feel good when it happens to you or to me. He's someone that was plotted against. And they caught him, right? They they, they had a plan and it worked, and this is how they turn him in. Verse 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. They turned him in, verse 13, And as they're turning him into King Darius, they say he still prays three times a day. There was real pressure for Daniel to be obedient because let's let's get into his human brain for a moment. This is someone who has walked with God for 80 or 90 years with an incredible reputation. This is someone who has prospered in their life by being persistent and consistent in their relationship with God. The law was for 30 days. Don't you think Daniel might have thought it's just 30 days? I've been faithful for 90 years. What's a month in the midst of all of that? Maybe what I'll do over the next month is just lay low for for a month. We're gonna wait this one out. I I think that's something he thought about. It's just 30 days. Surely there's nothing that can happen in 30 days that will upend my reputation. 
I can survive 30 days. God and I are so connected. He'll understand this, this one. Or I think more just about the, the energy, honestly. 80, 90 years old, don't you think he thought, I'm too old for all this drama? I'm just going to lay low. And we'll get through King Darius month and, and we'll pick back up. Daniel's reputation and his years of obedience did not translate to comfort. Now, I want us to think about that because if the, the truth of the matter is we, in the way many of us think about our walk with God and life, there is this kind of unspoken equation. And it goes something like this. The more years I follow God, less the pressure should be. And we don't voice it that clearly. But the truth of the matter is we become entitled people the longer we walk with God. Someone who has walked with God for a while, I have faced that over these last three months. I've had to deal with that kind of entitlement. That somehow I've been so tight with God and we've gone to so many places that, that, that somehow uh, life should be a little bit easier and things should come a little quicker. The temptation is that the longer we journey with God, there's a temptation that when pressure comes that we don't see it as just part of life, we try to blame somebody for where it's coming from. The first observation of what obedience looks like is a recognition that even Daniel, faithful Daniel, in his older age, is someone who continued to face pressure, daily pressure, to be obedient. It's part of the equation. It's part of what we've signed up for when we follow God. But here's the good news. In the midst of the pressure, second observation, verse 10, there was a posture of obedience. In the midst of the pressure, the plot is unfolding, and before he gets caught, he takes a posture in the midst of the pressure, and verse 10 is loaded with meaning. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, and this is the part I want you to hear, just as he had done before. Let's be crystal clear. Daniel hears about a law that has been passed and his immediate posture, his immediate reaction is disobedience to that law. Now, he, he disobeyed that law, but he didn't do it loudly. He wasn't doing it for an audience. He didn't do it for a, for a show. He wasn't doing that. I don't think he, he was, I'm going to go up to my room and it's going to show them who I really am and what this law really is. No, he went on with his normal life just as he had done before. So while he was disobedient to the law, he wasn't making, I don't think, a statement for the public. I don't think he thought, um, hey, I'm going to pray. I'm going to go up to my room. It's going to be the window and make sure everybody can see. I'm going to pray so they can see me. Now, I, I think what Daniel thought is, I'm, I'm going to go on with my normal life and, I, and before I, I, I want God to see me. His posture was one of prayer towards God, not a posture towards making a statement towards others. 
His posture was one of prayer, and this, this verse alone could be a sermon series. There is so much in how in these little nuggets that we could spend weeks talking about. Here, here let me briefly talk about. When it says he prayed three times a day, You'll be really hard-pressed to find anywhere in the Old Testament, maybe in some psalms that give some, some, some image to the morning, to noontime, to evening, but, but to be a faithful Jew at that time would to be someone who prayed twice a day, at sunup and sundown. So this, this description of three times a day communicates um, an intimacy, a connection that Daniel had with God that, was, that, that stood out, that was a little bit more than what the, 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 the culture around him at that time was doing. Very rare to think of praying three times a day. On his knees, again, a sign, a symbol of submission to God. And this is someone who's on the verge of a major promotion Someone who has been given a significant amount of power. Someone who has influence. Someone who has made it by all the standards that you and I would say today, that's what it means to make it. And yet as a reminder to himself, he not only prays three times a day, but he's on his knees submitting, saying, as, as much as I've prospered in this life, God, you are God, I am not. The description of the windows facing Jerusalem, that's not just an interesting elaboration. That's a, that's a, that's a statement of rebellion against King Darius and this other kingdom. For his windows to open towards Jerusalem was him, was a reminder of what the real kingdom he was a part of. The one that superseded the, the country where he found himself. The, that ultimately Jerusalem and being the people of God and his future hope of God bringing them back from exile. All of that was a statement of devotion, of priority. And the most profound part of verse 10, as I've mentioned, is just as he had done before. Daniel kept doing what he normally did. And we read that Daniel was someone with a consistent connection with God. One that had been established over decades. Now the truth of the matter is that's inspiring to many of us because when we're honest, often what's true for people like us is that when the pressure comes, we ramp up the posture of prayer. So for the scriptures to tell us it's what he normally did is an inspiring thing for you and I to go, what are the rhythms we already have in place so that when the pressure comes, we already have a rhythm of connection with God. When I was a high school pastor here, we leveraged significant times in students' lives where we knew they were more open to understanding who God was and it was all based around pressure. So when I want my driver's license and when I'm applying to colleges, it's a great time to talk about God. Because they are like we. When the pressure comes, for many of us, that's the beginning of when we really start praying. And then when that pressure situation falls, so does our prayer. Question for you and for me, is are you the kind of person who has a posture of obedience that kicks in when the pressure comes? 
Or is it a posture that's been established in your life inside and outside of pressure? It's one of the most profound moments for me. The mo- one of the, the best parts of these last three months was establishing new rhythms with God for me. I'll talk more about that, but one of them that I'm grieving but happy to be here is my Sunday rhythm. You probably all think, what does a pastor do when they don't have to wake up and early and come to church? Well, if you're Jeff, you wake up early anyway, and no, I'm good for nobody in my house because they were all coming to Lake all summer, and then, so I just got up and left, and I found some churches, one church in particular about 40 minutes away, and my Sunday rhythm looked like this. I'd leave my house around 6.30. As I drove by Lake Avenue, I prayed for you all by name and your addresses. <laughs> and then I would go, and I found a... Um, a Near the church I would visit, there was a a, a grocery store with a coffee bar. I'd grab a cup of coffee, find out what text they were teaching that morning, begin to read it, to journal, and then I'd go to church. And if you are new to Lake Avenue today, I have a new appreciation for how terrifying it is to go to a new church for the first time. It is so scary. And I belong in places like this. Somebody going to say hi to me? Somebody going to care that I'm here? Maybe some of you are having that experience so far. I pray the people around you will welcome you. Anyway, I go to church, sing, worship, and then I go back and go to a restaurant by myself and journal more, pray more, think about the week ahead and come home around 3.30. And it restored me. It was profound intimacy with God. It's a rhythm that drew connection. There were no big crises for me during the summer. And I pray that that rhythm will continue in a different way as I'm back. What's your posture of prayer? If people were following you and looking at your life, what does it look like? Is it a once a week posture? Is it a twice a week posture? Is it a a once a day posture? I'm not given a, a goal here except to say Daniel sets a pretty high bar and it's one we can move toward more. So pressure of obedience, the posture of obedience, the third observation is around the Lord's presence. There's your P, experienced in obedience. So Daniel lives, he makes it through the night, and this is the conversation he has with the king. Daniel answered, verse 21, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, new wound was found on him because he had trusted in God. In the midst of the pressure, Daniel experienced the presence of God. It says God sent his angel. God shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel in this time was found to be innocent by God. The Lord sent his presence during disobedience, during difficulty, during moments of life and death, moments of anxiety, moments of fear. Daniel was not alone. God's presence was with him. And from an Old Testament point of view, this is profound. God's presence had a particular location mostly in the Old Testament. It was in the temple. So for God to send his presence to this very specific location from an Old Testament standpoint, this is mind-blowing. 
Now, what's even more mind-blowing as a New Testament church is that for those of us who follow Jesus, God doesn't send his presence back and forth to us, but when we follow Jesus, he gives you and I his presence through the Holy Spirit when we follow him. Which means what? For Daniel, he started that journey in the lion's den minus the presence of God. God's presence came to him in the midst of that. It means you and I, no matter what situation we're facing, no matter what moment of pressure that you are in, that God's, when you follow Jesus, the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and me and us as a community which means there is no situation, no darkness, no difficulty that you are away from God. That is profound. The truth of the matter is, though, there are so many times where where even those of us who followed Jesus for so long, we forget that the presence of God lives in us, dwells in us, and among us. And the anxiety that we feel and the loneliness that we feel, some of us, we need to wake up to the reality that God's presence is in us and through us. Daniel trusted God. Verse 24, when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted God. Did you know that you can love God and still struggle to trust him? Anybody in a relationship where you love someone, but trust, we're figuring that one out still, or we're rebuilding? Do not mistake love and trust as a given. Daniel can love God and trust him, and that's the example for us. The example is that you and I have an opportunity not just to love God, but to trust him. Daniel loved and trusted God even when it started to look really bad. I have no idea if Daniel thought when he would go in that den if he was going to live or not. I don't know. But I believe this, that no matter what the outcome was going to be, I believe Daniel trusted God. So the question I have for you and for me is, what's pretty bad in your life right now? What came out of nowhere this week? That phone call, that moment, that conversation. So many of us had weeks like that. And the question for you, if that's you this week, is do you trust God with that? Do you trust that God's presence is with you? Do you trust that no matter the outcome of that situation, that you're not forgotten and that God's presence is with you? Daniel trusted and loved. May it be true for you and I. Final observation of obedience is the proclamation from obedience. Verses 24 and 28. There is a response in this narrative. It's not just an interesting Bible story about lions that didn't eat somebody. There's a response, and this is the part where I feel like it's amazing to me that this is a children's story because the drama continues after he doesn't get eaten, and we rarely talk about it. There's some tough stuff in there. 
What I love about the proclamation that happens as a result of this is not anything Daniel is saying about himself. Daniel's not coming out of the den and saying, look what I survived, look how obedient I was. Daniel doesn't come out of the den and say anything about the people who have put him there. Daniel comes out of the den with a life that is a witness to God's presence and power. And if anybody's talking, it's the king. The proclaiming was about God. These final verses, Daniel doesn't actually mutter a word. He doesn't say anything. His words don't make the record. It's King Darius's words that make the record. But let's deal with this part we don't like to talk about, that Darius's first reaction was to take all the accusers and their children and their wives and throw them to be destroyed to the lion. Lions. Now, there are some commentators, and in my study, that would say that is a, um, that's a symbol of God's justice, and who knows how many were there. There are some people who say that's just, it's in comparison to they were trying to destroy Daniel, now they get destroyed. Now, that's above my pay grade, and I don't think it's the meat of the story, but I do want to say something about this that I've observed. I want you to notice that in this story, as brutal as that is, there's nowhere in this narrative where we see God asking for that to happen. We don't see anywhere in this narrative for God celebrating that or Daniel celebrating that or asking for that to happen. It's kind of there. And it's something we need to deal with, but I don't read this narrative as God ordaining Daniel asking everybody throwing a big party that a bunch of people got slaughtered. It's just kind of there. What is there in more detail is the same king confesses faith in Daniel's God. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders. In the heavens and on the earth, he's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. I want you to notice this. The proclamation that comes as a result of this obedience is twofold. Daniel's life gives witness and Darius' words give witness. And the point of that is this, is that not all the time, for those of us who are trying to be faithful to God, are our words going to be as important as showing a life? If it's just about words and proclaiming about who God is, I'm good. I don't need to do anything else today. I've done that. I've done that to you, and I'll tell you, this is easy. The hard thing will be when I get home today and the way I speak to and treat and cherish my wife and my children, my ability to remember God is God and not Jeff Matisich, my ability to be when I'm frustrated, patient, when I'm tired to have energy for other people, when somebody might write me an email that they didn't like a certain point to be gracious. See, it's not just about saying stuff, Lake Avenue. It's about making sure that we have a life that matches up with what we say. And sometimes the greatest testimony to faithfulness isn't us boasting about what we've done, but letting other people say what they've seen God do through us, just like Darius. That's why I love this church. I can give testimony to so many 
including our brother Steve Lazarian, whose life gave witness to the power of God. We don't have to have the words all the time. In fact, maybe we need to stop having the words sometimes and make sure the life is catching up to what we're saying. So I think the application's clear. For, for some of us, maybe just to be reminded or to learn that pressure is part of the gig and that that's just part of obedience and it's part of life. Maybe that could bring comfort to somebody today. Maybe for some, maybe we've been, God's speaking to us about our own posture that maybe when pressure comes, we're just been more reactive than obedient to look to God and to pray to him. Maybe we need to kick up our rhythms. Maybe we're not in a season of pressure and I wanna, I wanna do something so that when that next thing comes, I wanna do what I'm already doing instead of starting yet again. Some of us need to be reminded that we're not alone and that God's presence is with us even when it's looking bad, even when surprises come, even when that thing out of nowhere that feels so paralyzing that the presence of God, for those of us who follow Jesus, the very presence of God is with you and in you and among us as a church, that would bring encouragement to someone. Or maybe it's time to think about the question, what is my life proclaiming? What are other people saying about my God and me? Maybe I'm really just proclaiming much more about the Dodgers and my favorite restaurant than I am about the God of this world, the savior of my life. We're gonna move from this into a time of communion and it actually fits quite perfectly. Because many people would observe and say that what we have in Daniel 6 is the passion of Daniel because it so is similar to what we see in Matthew 26 with the passion of Jesus. Because Jesus, like Daniel, will have people conspire against him. Jesus, like Daniel, will have people create a plan to get him killed. Jesus, like Daniel, (laughs) We'll be in a pressure situation and it will be so tense and so pressure that we read that he will sweat blood. Jesus, like Daniel, in the midst of the pressure takes a posture of prayer too, doesn't he? In the garden, Jesus, like Daniel, will experience the rescuing power and presence of God where Daniel would be rescued from the jaws of lions, Jesus will be rescued and resurrected from the jaws of death. And as evidence of God, Jesus' life will proclaim, will proclaim his power and his goodness, it will proclaim a new way of living, it will invite others to come into the family. And so when we come to this table, we're remembering the high cost of the presence of God available to you and I. That we have a God who doesn't just talk about pressure and posture, a God who models it for us, a God who offers us his presence, a God who wants our lives and our words to proclaim him. And so this table is a family meal for brothers and sisters. And before I ask the stewards to come forward and we do the words of institution over communion, I just want to say this, that this is a table where we come together as brothers and sisters. And if I have one observation 
that I want to share with you today about my time of sabbatical, and this has more to do with what I've seen out there than anything I've heard or thought about with you. It's this. It's that part of the genius of this meal, and I think the genius of Jesus telling us to do us often, is a fewfold. One, yes, to constantly remember the sacrifice of Jesus, but to remember our common need for Jesus as well. And it's at this table where it doesn't matter who the rich are or the poor are, doesn't matter the oldest or the youngest, it doesn't matter male nor female, we all come to this table with equal need and this table is the great equalizer. Now I say that because I think one of the concerns I have, and I watched this, many of you watched John McCain's service yesterday and it speaks to some of this too. I think one of the problems, one of the ways the enemy is winning with us, friends, In Daniel, it was the unbelieving world that threw Daniel to the lions. See, I feel like what's happening in our world is we're just throwing one another to the lions. So because we do that, we do this. And it's at this table we remember that we're brothers and sisters, all in need of Jesus. So I'll invite the stewards to come forward and to prepare the tables. And I'll remind you that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he was with his disciples, his friends. The plot was already figured out. The plan was already in action. And Jesus knew it. And he had one last meal with his friends, his disciples. And at that meal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body. It's gonna be broken for you. Take and eat. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement. And this agreement, this new covenant that I'm making with you, my people, will be marked by the shedding of blood and it will be for the forgiveness of sin. And he invites them to drink that cup. And then he says, to do this often to keep coming back to this meal so we can remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the high price for our freedom, the fact that God's presence is available to us. Yes, it's free, but it costs something. And also it's a table that reminds us of our unity and our oneness and need of Jesus. So after I pray and as the music begins, I ask you to come get the elements, bring them back to your seat because in this family we're gonna eat together today, okay? So God, we're grateful to be here and we are people in this moment who think about your son Jesus and the high price and the cost for our freedom. And I pray for myself in this time and each person in this time that our thoughts would be focused on you and our need for you in our lives and our gratefulness for your sacrifice of your son Jesus, amen.